Welcome to Matt's Podcast, the podcast of Matt's Therapeutics Germany. We talk to experts in various fields about current topics and issues in medicine and research. My name is Judith Lambert Baumann. I'm Head of Medical Affairs Germany and I'm very happy to welcome you to the second part of our conversation within the Merz Podcast Special on Immunology. In line with our company's motto, Better Outcomes for More Patients, Merz Therapeutics strives to provide valid health information and an added value for healthcare professionals and patients. In the second part of our expert discussion on immunological insights to botulinum neurotoxin type A, Bond A in short, we will talk about further clinically relevant aspects, particularly the importance of purity of pharma proteins and the clinical significance of this. Dear Professor Martin, a very warm welcome. We are happy to greet you once again as our guest. It is my pleasure to be here with you again today. Dear Professor Martin, for those listeners who join us for the first time, I would like to briefly introduce you. You are a biochemist by training and you have qualified as professor in the field of immunology at the distinguished Hanover Medical School in Germany. From 2003 until 2020, you were head of the immunology in the Faculty of Biology and Chemistry at the Justus Liebig University in Gießen, Germany. A part of serving as reviewer for many scientific journals and funding agencies, you contributed many publications and review articles. In addition, you authored two textbooks on immunology and immunopharmacology in Germany. In the first part of our conversation, you provided us with a pertinent knowledge on the immunogenicity of pharma proteins, focusing on Bond A. You emphasized the parallelism of treatment with Bond A and vaccination. Let us now talk about further insights in immunology again with respect to Bond A. As an immunologist, can you give us a clear and concise explanation of the influence of purity on immunogenicity of pharma proteins? Well, at least I can try, Mrs. Lambert-Baumann. I would like to come back to the comparison of Bond A treatment with the biological events and processes that take place during vaccination. We had mentioned several parameters in the previous podcast episode that define the immunogenicity of a vaccine which is the ability of a substance to cause antibody formation. Now comes into play the last parameter that defines the immunogenicity of a vaccine, which we had only addressed briefly in part one of this podcast. This is the presence of adjuvants. Professor Martin, what is meant by adjuvants in this context? Simplified, adjuvants are enhancers of immunogenicity which allow the formation of antibodies also against a very weak immunogen. Applied to bond A, this implies that bioactive pure bond A by itself is too weak an immunogen to cause neutralizing antibody formation at the doses used for therapy. However, in the presence of substances that con can provide a sufficiently strong stimulus to activate the immune system, an immune response against bond A can 
progress finally culminating in formation of neutralizing antibodies. Thank you very much for this vivid and brief description of pure bond A with respect to adjuvants. Could you please try to further explain why pure bond A by itself is unable to lead to antibody formation? Yes, my pleasure. After all, this is my job as an immunologist. However, we do have to look a little bit more into the immunological mechanisms leading to the formation of neutralizing antibodies because we must first understand how the immune system works and how it reaches the decisions to become activated. Let us consider which criteria the immune system exploits to decide if it is appropriate to respond to a challenge by producing antibodies. What do you think, Mrs. Lambert-Baumann? What is important for the activation of the immune system? What does the immune system recognize? <laughs> well, these immunological mechanisms are manifold, faster and slower ones, primary and secondary, but also foreign and own are criteria that play a role for the activation of our immune system. Absolutely correct. I could not have said it better myself. Then let us talk about a practical example. When having an egg for breakfast, this protein of a hen will definitely be foreign for you. But will your body respond to the egg by forming antibodies to the egg white? As long as you're not by chance allergic to chicken egg white, rather not. But why not? Shouldn't you? The egg white is foreign. Then the sole fact that something is foreign does not fulfill the criteria leading to activation of the immune system? Well, normally not. Your immune system requires a second criterion in addition to foreign to decide whether a full-blown immune reaction is justified which results in the formation of antibodies. And this second criterion is dangerous. And really, boils, hens, eggs are not primarily dangerous to us human beings as compared to microbes such as viruses and bacteria which can be really dangerous. Let us restrict the discussion to bacteria today. These are especially dangerous for us because they are able to multiply rapidly in our body to cause diseases. In a very short time after invading our bodies, they will compete for nutrients and energy with our own cells, frequently disturbing our metabolism for their own benefit. They can even kill us with their toxic products. Just think of botulism. Let us briefly summarize here what you have just said. You are telling us that our immune system uses two criteria in order to decide whether or not an extensive immune response is necessary upon a challenge? Correct. Dangerous and foreign. And exactly in that order. First dangerous and second foreign. Why is this sequence of first dangerous and then second foreign of such pivotal importance? And how does Bond A come into this decision process? Actually, two different types of immune cells are responsible at each step to recognize and determine if a substance is dangerous and foreign. At first, sentinel cells that are placed 
and strategically important positions in our body identify if something dangerous has invaded us. Let me describe it in a simplified manner. These sentinel cells, we immunologists call them dendritic cells because of their cellular extensions, recognize a few characteristic microbial surface structure. This makes sense as these surface structures of invading bacteria will be the first molecules to come into contact with special receptors on the surface of these sentinel cells. These receptors bind to a small number of prototypic molecules characteristic for many types of bacteria. One prominent example that is also relevant for our topic later on is flagellin, a protein many types of bacteria use to move. It is important to understand that in this first and very rapid recognition step, only a very limited number of such microbial surface structures will be identified. And these are exactly those central signature molecules that many bacteria show on their surface. This facilitates fast recognition of a broad microbial challenge with very few receptors. Many other types of bacterial proteins, including those produced within bacteria or released externally by bacteria, will not be recognized in this first step. By the way, this includes the bond A molecule, which is not a surface molecule. To put it straight, at this very early time point, the immune system restricts itself to seeing whole and live bacteria, as these are the really dangerous ones because they can multiply. So, dendritic cells decide if an immune reaction is going to take place or not, is that correct? Absolutely correct. The dendritic cell is sort of a gatekeeper of the immune system. Binding of microbial surface molecules to special receptors on dendritic cells results in the activation of these sentinel cells. And activation is essential as this initiates the second step of the immune response. Dendritic cells now start probably the oldest defense mechanism in evolution. They simply eat, or as we say, phagocytose, what they have recognized as being dangerous in their immediate vicinity, in our example, the invading bacteria. Subsequently, these are digested within the dendritic cells with two consequences. First, the bacteria are killed and thus are unable to multiply anymore. And second, bacterial proteins are digested and many pieces, so-called peptides, are generated. These bacterial peptides are now shown on special peptide-presenting molecules on the surface of the activated dendritic cell to the outside. Let me briefly summarize what you just said. Dendritic cells have to be activated so strongly that they phagocyte a protein in order to digest it and present peptides derived from this to the outside. Is that correct? Yes. Such a dendritic cell has developed from a sentinel cell into the informant or the whistleblower, if you like, for the second decision maker of the immune system. Now, as antigen presenting cell, 
The dendritic cells show specialized immune cells, the T helper lymphocytes, the peptides in their peptide-presenting molecules, and thus allow these to discriminate between peptides derived from own or foreign proteins. I see. That explains nicely the strict hierarchy in decision-making. Only the uptake of an antigen allows subsequent antigen presentation. Thus always dangerous first and foreign second. Only if sentinel cells become activated by danger signals to phagocytose will they transform to antigen-presenting cells that present foreign peptides to T-helper lymphocytes. Inescapably, foreign must always be the second criterion. By the way, this explains why a hen's egg white is not causing antibody formation. It does not contain danger signals to activate dendritic cells. Now, if T-helper lymphocytes recognize this foreign protein that has been generated from a protein of a dangerous challenge, they then cells become activated and will support B lymphocytes to produce antibodies against this antigen that has proven to stem from a dangerous and foreign protein. Professor Martin, can we now apply all this to the clostridial pharma protein? How does this apply to bond A? Isn't bond A both foreign and dangerous? Yes, of course. Bond A is a bacterial protein and clearly foreign. And we also know that peptides derived from bond A can be presented by activated dendritic cells to T-helper lymphocytes. And yes, we do know from clinical experience and data that treatment with bond A may result in utilizing antibody formation. But also, no, pure bond A by itself is not really dangerous from an immunological perspective. And why not? As the name suggests, it is considered a toxin, a poison. In order to understand that, we have to discriminate two different and independent processes in our body. Bond A can become life-threatening for human beings because at high concentrations, it is able to inhibit signal transmission at the neuromuscular end plate. In consequent flaccid paralysis of the innervated muscles, will be observed, which may result in respiratory failure. The person intoxicated with bond A can die if one does not successfully provide artificial mechanical ventilation immediately for as long as it takes to degrade the neuromodulator in the nerve terminal, possibly for weeks. But this is a neuromuscular problem that is of no interest to the immune system. Dangerous in immunological terms means, can this substance by itself activate dendritic cells to phagocytose and become an antigen-presenting cell? Or phrased differently, is bond a, a typical bacterial surface structure? Can it alone bind to a pattern recognition receptor on the surface of a sentinel cell? And the answer is clearly no. Bond A is a protein that is produced by the bacterium Clostridium botulinum and subsequently released by the bacteria. Therefore, it is not able to activate dendritic cells by itself. Hence, from an immunological point of view, pure Bond A is 
not dangerous. Thank you very much, Professor Martin. This is important to know. Could you now again address the role of adjuvants in this context? Well, please apologize for my rather long excursion, but it is absolutely necessary to understand the hierarchy within the process of decision-making in the immune system. Having understood that, you can comprehend easily how adjuvants work. As already stated, adjuvants are enhancers of vaccination that permit an antibody response even against a very weak immunogen. Professor Martin, how do adjuvants do this? Well, very simply. Adjuvants are activators of pattern recognition receptors on dendritic cells. They provide the danger signals. Pure bioactive bond A may be foreign due to its bacterial origin, but it lacks the danger signals required to activate dendritic cells to become an antigen-presenting cell. Missing danger signals, however, can be delivered by adjuvants. If one injects bond A together with adjuvants at the same time in the same place, then these adjuvants will activate the dendritic cell in such a manner that this activated sentinel cell will also phagocytose the bond A present in the immediate vicinity. The activated dendritic cell will then also generate peptides out of bond A and it will present these subsequently to the helper lymphocytes. Thus, with the help of adjuvants, an immune response can be triggered against a weak immunogen such as bond A, resulting in the formation of neutralizing antibody. In fact, the word adjuvant is derived from adjuvare, which means to help in Latin. And what does that mean for the different bond preparations on the market? First, it neatly explains why, as far as known today, to date no secondary antibody-mediated non-response or treatment failure was reported in patients that were treated from the beginning of the therapy exclusively with incobotulinum toxin A. Incobotulinum toxin A is the only commercially available product that contains only the pure and bioactive pharmaceutical ingredient and no additional bacterial components that could act as adjuvants. Thus, no neutralizing antibodies to incobotulinum toxin A are induced. Which bacterial components are likely to act as adjuvants? First and foremost, the complexing proteins have to be mentioned here. As already stated, they have no role in the pharmacological activity of injected bond A. Undoubtedly, flagellin plays an important role as well. It is a prototypical bacterial surface structure of a wide range of bacteria and well characterized as one of the strongest activators of human dendritic cells. The same is true for bacterial DNA, which has been shown to be a contaminant in one of the Bond A products by PCR. And finally, one should not disregard protein aggregates, which are also capable of activating dendritic cells. Such aggregates can develop if biologically inactive or denatured toxin molecules or wrongly folded complexing proteins are contained within a product. Such proteins tend to form aggregates. 
This problem is very well known from the production of recombinant pharma proteins. You have clearly explained why one solely by conscious choice of the applied bond A product can avoid injection adjuvants together with a neuromodulator. Adjuvants that are unnecessary for the pharmacological activity of bond A. I would like to support this. Why inject more than necessary? The exclusive use of highly purified and bioactive bond A carries the lowest risk of neutralizing antibody formation. Solely by choosing a bond A product with a very low immunogenicity, the physician can minimize the risk of antibody-mediated resistance to this valuable pharma protein. Thank you very much, Professor Martin, of this focused and seminal summary. Once again, it has been a pleasure talking to you. In both parts of this conversation, we refreshed our background knowledge on desirable and undesirable immune responses in our body. In addition, we were able to intensify and apply that knowledge with respect to Bond A, as well as appreciate the importance of purity and its clinical implications. Dear Professor Martin, thank you very much indeed. And in line with the overall theme of our series of conversation, we wish you all the best of health and a very good immunity. Dear Mrs. Lambert Baumann, thank you and the same to you. More information on Incobotulinum toxin A can be found on our websites for healthcare professionals. You've been listening to Mertz Podcast, the podcast of Mertz Therapeutics Germany. We hope you will join us again for another episode at www.mertz-podcast.de.